1: I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on press box Access. My hope for press box Access is to not only entertain you, the listener, but also put history on tape. With that in mind, I want to pay a special salute to the great Helene Elliott as she ends her 34 years at the Los Angeles Times. Helene recently accepted a buyout from the Times. Her farewell column appeared yesterday, February 27th. Elliott was the first female journalist to be honored by the Hall of Fame of a major professional North American sport. That breakthrough occurred in 2005 when the Hockey Hall of Fame recognized her as a winner of the esteemed Elmer Ferguson Award. Elliot did much more than cover hockey in numerous Stanley Cup finals during her 47 years as a sports writer. Olympics, World Cups, Super Bowls, NBA Finals, World Series, she was everywhere. And at every stop, Aline earned the respect of her peers and those she covered. And her career, which began in the late 1970s, helped break down barriers for other women in sports media. As a tribute to Elliot, we're once again publishing this episode. My conversation with her from February 2022. Helene, it's an honor to have you as a guest on PressBox Access.
0: Thank you. Thanks for asking.
1: No, you were definitely a a writer that I wanted to reach out to, and I'm so glad that you've uh, agreed to join us. Your career has been so wonderful. You've been a trailblazer for sports uh, media for women and just, uh, and, you know, set the standard for all journalists, men and women, uh, for many, many years in the sports world. So I'm real happy about this. Although I must say, Helene, sources have told me that in 1978, you were bumped from the cover of People magazine by Lenny and Squiggy. Is that correct?
0: Oh, my God, yes. You really did your homework, didn't you? Yes. Cindy. Well, I don't think it was the cover, but uh, that was an interesting time. Yeah. I, uh, whenever I tell people I was in People magazine, they don't believe it. I said, just look for the Lenny and Squiggy cover. So... Uh, I'm sure somewhere on on eBay somebody has a tattered copy up there
1: well you know Lenny and squiggy on the Laverne and Shirley show in 1978 that's about as big as it got in America right so we'll we'll forget people <laughs> magazine uh, and what was that what was that about Helene you were just early into your career what what was that story about
0: yeah they used to have a feature called up and coming where they would feature uh, young authors or writers or actors or whatever and uh um, I think there had been an item in the Chicago Sun-Times about me uh, being one of the youngest columnists in the country. And I think somebody uh, picked up on that and uh, they sent out a photographer and a writer. And I remember they posted it was in the, I think it was in the locker room at Northwestern. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember somebody's big basketball shoes being placed <laughs> next to me. So, <laughs> nice. That's a long time ago.
1: Nice, nice. Well, people might have bumped you for Lenny and Squiggy, but you haven't been bumped by the Hockey Hall of Fame. You were enshrined there in 2005. Uh, your plaque is there. You were honored with the Elmer Ferguson Memorial Award and uh, the first female to be uh, enshrined into a major pro sport. Um, Hall of Fame as a journalist. Well, to
0: to be technical, no media members are actually uh, enshrined. We're honored with a media award, and that applies to basketball and baseball and football as well. Um, We're considered uh, media honorees as opposed to honored members. Um, But I always tell a story about how um, when I was uh, when I won the Elmer Ferguson Award. And one of the perks is you get a jacket and they Mm -hmm. put a um, Hall of Fame emblem on it. And it's really a nice jacket. And I was wondering what was going to happen because they'd never had a female winner before. So I get to Toronto for the ceremonies and they're being lovely and treating me and my husband so well. And uh, they took us to a tailor shop in Toronto. And I'm thinking, oh, this is wonderful. They're going to such great lengths and they're going to tailor the jacket for me and everything Except the tailor comes out from behind the back room of the shop and he has two jackets in his hand. And he says, one is a 54, men's 54 short. The other a men's 54 long. Oh, come on. Which one is. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what it was. Yeah. And I was just in such shock and I didn't want to, you know, be ungrateful because, I mean, this is such an incredible honor. But I was just kind of stunned that, uh. Uh, There was no uh, woman's option or certainly nothing even close to my size. Um, So it was kind of... uh Uh, Something I I, a little story I tell them whenever I read about another woman getting a media award or Hall of Fame award now for female hockey players. I always say, just make sure your jacket fits.
1: (laughs) Right, right. That's I mean I think what that represents is what you had to overcome and what you did, and so many other female journalists breaking down the walls that you know when you started in the late '70s, it was such a different business, and here they are. They're going to honor you, and they and they give you a men's. Jacket.
0: It's <laughs> difficult for people now to imagine what it was like back then because I mean, now you turn on any sports event and there's a female sideline reporter, and increasingly often, and it's wonderful, there's female play by play announcers. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, Leah Hextall in hockey, uh, female analysts like Doris Burke, who is absolutely the best in the business. Um, you know, so. It's common to see female broadcasters and writers and columnists now, and it certainly wasn't back then. I mean, there were so few of us, we, we all knew each other and we would kind of trade tips on, you know, which managers or coaches were hostile and which were uh, welcoming and which players you would likely have difficulty talking to and which players would be supportive. So uh, it's a very different time now. And that's one thing I'm very glad to have seen after all these years.
1: What is it about the career that you've had that comes to mind, um, you know, when you think about how special it's been all these years?
0: Well, uh, just to pick up on your note about uh, busy, on Sunday, I was at the Chargers. On Monday, I was at the Lakers. On Tuesday, I went to the King's practice. On Wednesday, I wrote a column about the fact that Staples Center has, is going to have a name change. And yesterday, last night, I was at the Ducks. So that uh, <laughs> yeah. gives you an idea of uh, the uh, variety. Um, what was that intro from a Wide World of Sports? The infinite variety of sports or whatever. But, exactly. You know, certainly, I, I grew up in Brooklyn in this tiny little far remote corner of Brooklyn. And I... Um, you know, to have imagined then that I would have covered seventeen Olympics and have been lucky enough to be at World Series and NBA Finals and Stanley Cup Finals and uh, Super Bowls and all these other things is just a, incredible. I it could I could not have fathomed it at that time, and I've been very lucky uh, along the way. But it's um, you know, the, the, and the thing is, people will often ask me, "What's your favorite sport?" Mm-hmm. or what, "What's your favorite event to cover?" And my answer is always the one I'm covering at that time. Hmm. Because I think you have to approach it with a freshness or else you're cheating yourself and you're cheating your readers. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the great thing about sports is that no two events are the same. Right. I mean, it could be the same two teams, but the outcome isn't going to be the same. The tone may not be the same. The style of play may not be the same. The weather conditions or whatever may not be the same. So it's never the same experience. There's always something different. There's always... Uh, different motivation uh, on the part of the athlete. So um, it's, that's what keeps me doing this is just, and I think it's a question we all have. You're sitting in your living room watching a game and you go, what was he thinking? (laughs) Exactly. After the game, I can ask him or or her, Um, you know, it's, what are they thinking? What makes one athlete, Thrive under pressure, and another one get nervous. What makes one athlete uh, be a leader, and another one a follower, or or whatever else it is? I mean, there's just such an infinite variety of, of, of the human the human condition, for lack of a better term, it um, makes people tick. And um, you know, being a journalist to a degree is a license to be nosy, mm-hmm. to to ask questions that. Um, you know, you really couldn't if you're in a social situation. And, um, you know, the answers you get are are sometimes really mind-blowing.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you've covered so many great, great events. You mentioned 17 Olympics, World Cup, Super Bowl, NBA Finals, World Series, Wimbledon. We're going to talk a lot of hockey and Olympics. Uh, Let's start with hockey. Um, When you came out in, into the business in 1977, and um, were you a hockey fan? Did you did you really enjoy that at sport as a child in, in Brooklyn, or is it hockey something that just grew on you?
0: No, I had a friend whose dad played semi-pro hockey, um, and one day he took me and his daughter and another friend of ours to a Rangers game, and I just was hooked immediately. I just couldn't believe that this sport existed and I hadn't known about it. Uh, I grew up a baseball fan and I, I love baseball and I love basketball. Um, but after I saw my first hockey game, I went, wow, where's this been all my life? And um, I just loved it. Uh, the fact that these folks are so coordinated. I mean, I can barely walk without tripping over my own feet. And here are these people are skating and doing all these incredible uh, passing mo- passing, and shooting and everything they're doing while they're skating. I can't walk straight. Um, so I was fascinated by the the skill involved. And again, from where I grew up, I mean, places like Toronto and Montreal uh, seem so exotic and far away. Mm, Uh, That was another part of the attraction as well. Um, You know, I I used to have a little transistor radio and I don't know how many of your listeners would remember what a transistor radio is, but um, I used to have this little transistor radio that uh, I would listen to at night and at night, you could get all these stations from like Boston and I uh, used to get stations in Canada, which I thought was just incredible. And I uh, used to get WMAQ Chicago Clear Channel Station, so strong, and KDKA Pittsburgh and uh, some of these other wonderful radio stations. And it just got me, you know, dreaming about what else was out there in the world. And it was uh You know, hockey kind of set off that idea of all these wonderful places that I hoped I would visit someday.
1: And I think when you think about the events and you think about hockey, there's the event that really transcends the sport because it brings in people who maybe not weren't hockey fans or aren't hockey fans. But in 1980, obviously, the miracle on ice happened in the Olympics up at Lake Placid, New York. And you were one of the fortunate ones to actually be in that building that night. What was it like that night inside that little building?
0: Well, the whole thing, I think you have to put in the context of um, this is the pre-internet days. This is pre, uh, you know, cable TV days. This is when Lake Placid, which is a lovely little village in the Adirondack Mountains in New York State, it was pretty remote. So we really, being there, you had a hard time getting a sense of how big this was becoming. Mm. Uh, the one thing I remember is that as the team kept winning and personalities were developing, uh, you know, like Jack O'Callaghan and Mark Pavlich and Jim Craig and all these things, all these people were becoming better known. People would send, fans would send telegrams and those telegrams were taped to the wall in the ring. Wow. I have a very clear memory of that. Uh, all these telegrams and just the number of telegrams was absolutely astonishing. But, you know, there were no cell phones mm. then. There were, You couldn't pick up a, a cell phone and, you know, read a, a story on your phone and figure out what the impact was. I mean, it was this was kind of isolated. It was uh, a little village. It was hard to realize what the impact was. Obviously, playing the Russians, given the political tensions of the time, the game took on aspects bigger than just a hockey game. It was held up as, you know, our system versus their system, which obviously it wasn't, but that's the meaning that other people brought to it. And I just remember coming out of the arena and people dancing in the streets and just the impact was so much bigger than any of us thought it could possibly have. I think at that point, People were looking for a reason to be yeah. happy. You know, yeah. I think, was that around the time of the gas lines and a time of political tension? Yeah, the Iranian
1: hostage situation. Yeah, was going exactly.
0: On, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the US image in the world was kind of um, not as. Shiny as it as it had been, and um, I think people were looking for a feel good story, and this certainly was. You know, these college kids. This the coach who had set him up, set himself up as you know the bad guy, capital T, capital B, capital G, the bad guy, <laughs> Herb Brooks, and um, Craig Patrick set himself up as the you know the friend to the players, and he did all the press conferences when Herb refused to do press conferences, and you know the the, the guys came up with little phrases and. Uh, just just wonderful personalities on that team. Um, you know, people wanted a feel-good story, and this was just an incredible feel-good story.
1: I mean, wh- how do you remember it as a hockey game when you were covering it, the actual game itself?
0: I remember the American speed. That was one of their biggest weapons was their speed. I mean, Herb put them through such incredible conditioning drills, and his famous saying was, the legs feed the wolf. <laughs> Meaning, if you can skate, if you can run, you can outlast your opponent. You'll get the spoils. You'll you'll get the the, the hunting trophy, um, and the shock when uh, Russia pulled their goalie with one second left in the in the period. Right. There, um, nobody knew what was going on. I mean, that was just incredible. Uh, and later, of course, the players said they didn't understand it either. But I mean, it was this incredible sense of you knew you were an, at an event that was. Memorable, but you did, I mean, certainly nobody could have imagined that we'd still be talking about it 40 plus years later. Right,
1: right. Do you remember having to write? Was it a type of event where like, oh my gosh, this is pretty big. (laughs) How how do you remember it as a writer?
0: Yeah, I remember that an editor changed my lead um, (laughs) and I still kid him about it uh, for all these years later. Wait a minute, wait Um, a minute. What did did you write uh, and what
1: was it changed to?
0: I wrote about walking outside and seeing people jumping up and down and dancing in the streets. And I was on the street and I was standing next to a guy who was wearing Russian team jacket and hat and one of those furry hats. And uh, he was watching it and kind of half smiling. And he saw me and saw my American credential. And he said, and he put up his finger as a number one sign and goes, Mm. one, you are number Mm. one. And that, I had that in my lead, and somebody changed that to uh, going into the Olympics. Everyone said the Russians had the team and the U.S. had the dream. And I didn't like the uh, lead, but hey.
1: Well, the miracle on ice is something that, like you said, who would have thought 40 years later, you know, and we're still talking about it, it transcended the actual sport of hockey. It brought in non-hockey fans. And when you think about it, The hockey player who transcended the sport and brought in non-hockey fans is Wayne Gretzky. And you had the fortune to cover him a lot. I wanted to ask you first about him as a player. You know, I stood next to Gretzky. I'm six foot one. They list him at six foot. He's not six foot tall, right? Mm -mm. No. No. How big is he?
0: It's We always say uh, hockey rosters. I say, you know, six foot one Canadian, and then you, uh, you know, convert it to US, which is less. But yeah, I mean, I think that's part of Gretzky's appeal was, you know, you look at um, LeBron James, you know, he's a basketball player. You look at football players, beefy linemen, you know, they're football players. Um, uh, You know, Wayne Gretzky looked like any guy walking down the street. I mean, maybe thicker thighs because of the skating, but I mean, he looked human, he looked approachable, he was relatable. In terms of his stature, Um, the way he thought the game, the way he saw the game, the way he saw plays before they developed was incredible. And I always say that, you know, as many points as he got in his career, think of how many more he could have had. If he had wingers who were close to his skill level, think of all the passes he made that were so good that people may not have expected them and so couldn't finish them off and score goals. He probably could have had another 500 points if people finished off some of those passes. I
1: mean, he only had (laughs) 2,800.
0: Yeah, only, yeah. I mean, come on.
1: Yeah. I mean, his numbers are insane. I mean, 61 NHL records, um, 894 goals, 2,857 points. It's the type of thing when you look at it, it's almost hard to comprehend. Um, what number jumps out to you the most about Gretzky when you think about his career?
0: That if you subtract his goals and just his assists, he'd still be the leading scorer. Wow. Wow! <laughs> it's a wonderful discussion and argument to get into is comparing athletes from one era to the next, and um, which is, you know, impossible to really do, but it's, it's one of the things that makes sports fun is, you know, you bring your favoritism or your knowledge or to an argument like that. And you're, but I mean, Gretzky just was like no one we had seen before in terms of, you know, Bobby Orr comes closest in terms of just that incredible vision, that incredible ability to project what was going to happen, Mm. To know where to be, to know where to just pass the puck.
1: But when you think about that era, you know the speed of the game, the openness of the game. Um, is that was Gretzky just part of ta- making teams play that way, or was it just that was the era of hockey?
0: Um, I think that was part of the era of hockey. Um, you know, 8-6 scores and I can remember Kings and Edmonton playoff games, you know, 8-6 six and 6-4 six, and those kind of scores. And now it's, uh, now it's a 3-2 league as uh, Daryl Sutter famously said, and he's right. <laughs> um, but um, I think one of the things is that people like Gretzky and the scorers are so rare. The people with natural goal scoring talent are so rare that the NHL seems intent on Instead of making everybody catch up to that level, the NHL seems to intent on dumbing it down. Hmm. They allowed for so long, they allowed interference and in hooking and holding because people couldn't possibly reach Gretzky's level. And the only way they could compete was by bring, bringing Gretzky and great players down to a lower hmm. level. You know, you look at the NHL and you go, you have this incredible talent. Let them use their talents. Let, you know, get rid of the hooking and holding and interference and hacking and whacking. But that would mean that probably 200 players couldn't play in the league anymore.
1: Why do you think that is, Helene? Why do you think hockey as a, you know, as a league, the NHL, why, why didn't they take that approach?
0: Again, because there's just not as many talented people as there are. Average players. And no offense, please, to be an average NHL player is still infinitely much uh, more talented than any Garage League player. Or I don't know if that's going to come out sounding right. But what I mean is that, you know, there are so few extraordinary players. Why not feature them and cater to Mm. them rather than allowing the lesser talented players to drag them down? Right. Why not encourage people to rise? Instead of dragging down the best mm-hmm. players
1: and the coaching, why why turning into a street fight? And and when you can you can use the talents of a guy like that, um, and, and players who have that ability. Again, they're few, but the sport could maybe go in a direction that the fans would like to see more of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I, I think there should be more rules that cater to to scorers, that cater to uh, freedom to skating to. Uh, again, encourage people to lift the level of the game rather than dragging the superstars down to the level of the average player.
1: Well, Helene, you got to Los Angeles in 1989 and that was a year after uh, Gretzky was traded there. Can you put into context what it meant for hockey, for sports, when Gretzky went to Los Angeles in
0: 1988? Well, um, as you say, I wasn't in LA then, um, but I think that the NHL owes Wayne Gretzky a greater debt than it can ever pay. The reason we have a team in Anaheim, the reason there's a team in Arizona, the reason there's a team in San Jose uh, is because of Wayne Gretzky and the interest he sparked in hockey. Uh, again, as we said before, he gave the game a human hmm. face. He gave the game an appealing face, a relatable face and, um, you know, you look back at some of these old pictures and you see of hockey players and you see, you know, all these stitches and square jawed guys with black eyes and stitches and all over. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky, you know, was modest in stature, appealing looking guy, not, not good, decent looking guy. Um, people could relate to him. People who didn't know hockey at least had probably heard of him. Mm-hmm what he did for hockey is still being felt here and throughout the nhl now it's not the first generation it's these are what we're seeing now i think is the kids of people who started playing because gretzky came to la mm-hmm. uh you know every year you look at major college programs you look at junior hockey uh you look at all throughout youth levels of hockey and you'll see kids from california right. And they started because right. it's all because of Gretzky, whether it's first generation, second generation, maybe even third generation. Yeah, it's not,
1: it's, it's not just boys and men either, right? It's it's females playing.
0: Right, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. You know, the, uh, the Ducks have an incredible girls and women's program. Uh, the Kings have had youth programs uh, for years that were uh, accelerated by Gretzky's arrival. Um, there's a woman on the U.S. Olympic team, women's hockey team, who, uh, from Southern California, um, Angela Ruggiero, for many years, played uh, on the U.S. Olympic team, and she's from Southern California. But it's it's not just you know making it to the NHL that matters. It's hockey's become a recreational sport in the sense that if you're working in a company and you get a lunch break, maybe you go play basketball somewhere. You know, in Canada, that would be you know you go play beer league hockey somewhere. Hockey's part of the culture here yeah. now. I'm not saying it's ever going to rise to the level of basketball or or whatever but it is an accepted part of the culture here you there you can't build enough rinks for it here i mean the ducks just opened a four rink facility wow. in irvine which is a suburb south of los, of los angeles and i mean that place is going 24 hours a day almost um it's incredible to see they have the A rink for um, world-class figure skaters, uh, world figure skating champion Nathan Chen trains there. But there's always constant uh, recreational hockey games there and youth league games there. Um, Wayne Gretzky had an incredible impact on the NHL that I don't think many people realize the full extent of it.
1: And I think it's not just because he was a -a once-in-a-lifetime player on the ice. It was because he embraced being an ambassador, right? Exactly. He was,
0: he always had time for autographs. He always had time to make an appearance somewhere. He always had time to shake a hand and make eye contact and, um, and, and to be relatable, to be interested. Um, and there's a lot of things he did behind the scenes as well that he, he doesn't like to talk about that. Um, and it's told people to please not publicize that things that he did in the community or for individual players, um, you know, He's he made himself part of the community, and I think he was embraced here and certainly uh, everywhere else. Do you have
1: behind the scenes moments that stick out in your mind about covering him? Maybe it's something uh, how he related to other players, or something off the ice, or just him as a human. I guess not not just a hockey player.
0: Well, uh, this one of my favorite memories does involve hockey, but it was uh, the Islanders and Edmonton Oilers played in the Stanley Cup finals in 1983. Yeah, the fourth, Islanders' fourth straight cup.
1: Back when Bill Smith was the goaltender.
0: Oh, boy. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Um, It was Bill Smith who said that he was a constant critic of Gretzky. He was just, you know, he had to take him by the hand and introduce him to his own goaltender Mm. and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) But um, if I recall correctly, Billy Smith won the Con Smythe Award as the playoff MVP. And we were standing next to this I remember standing backstage behind this, next to a platform uh, where Bill Smith was getting the award or Bill Smith was speaking, doing an interview and Gretzky walked up and was waiting his turn at the podium. You know, here I am standing next to Wayne Gretzky. He's just, you know, lost this game and, you know, lost a chance at the cup and everything, he's standing there waiting his turn. Billy Smith comes down off the podium and starts walking past and Gretzky stuck his hand out to shake his hand, mm. shake Smith's hand, and Smith hesitated, but then he shook it. Mm. And I always thought that was really incredible of, of of Gretzky to do that, particularly because again, Smith is somebody who wasted no opportunity to make fun of Gretzky and to demean Gretzky and criticize him. And here Gretzky was being the guy to extend the the olive branch.
1: I think that's the kind of moment that does show the genuineness of when a person is playing an ambassador role. You're always sitting there wondering, ah, is he, you know, is he doing this for other reasons? But it just seems like Gretzky was just a genuinely decent guy.
0: Absolutely, he never forgot his roots. He always had a sense of responsibility. Uh, he wasn't just in L.A. to play hockey. He was there to promote the game to grow the game. And he took that seriously.
1: But he didn't like to fly though, right?
0: Uh, That is correct. I have another story on that as well. Okay. Um, All
1: right. Here we go. My
0: my memory is a little faulty here, but the year that the Bruins and Oilers played the Stanley Cup final.
1: It's 88. the game in Boston
0: Garden, the power went out in Boston Garden and the game had to be suspended. The Bruins had just tied the game on a power play, if I recall correctly, and the power went out. And Boston Garden in those days. What a dump. Garden didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> right, what a yeah. dump. Oh, man, that place was. And, you know, the lights go out and you hear the scurrying at your feet. And, you know, there's rats running around at your feet, which is another pleasant experience. But um, the game had to be suspended, even though everybody in the world knew Edmonton was going to win the game and win the cup. But we had to go back to fly back to Edmonton. And in those days, the league, the league ran charter airplane flights. And media were allowed to buy tickets on the charter because it was just more efficient and to get back and forth. I mean, you can't go nonstop Boston to Edmonton. So it worked out. And I remember being on the plane and sitting in my seat. And before the flight took off, Wayne was walking up and down the aisle. He was very nervous. Mm -hmm. In fact, he used to be so nervous that he would go up to the cockpit. He would have to talk to the pilots uh, before the flight took off. But
1: <laughs> wait a minute—he was, was asking questions up, he, like, you "Do you know how to do your job?" Yeah,
0: no. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for reassurance, basically. Yeah, and I remember he was walk He just had this look of just such anxiety on his face. So as he walked by me, I just—I remembered asking him a question. I don't even remember what I said, but just to get to get a, I figured if he got involved in a conversation, maybe he'd forget his anxiety and maybe he'd feel a little bit more comfortable. I don't I don't remember what I said, but he stopped. And we started chatting and we kept chatting. And as, you know, the longer he's standing there, people start, other writers started leaving their seats and coming over and joining this group. And I remember looking around at one point, there was a group of probably 15 or 20 writers just standing around and he's chatting. Nobody's recording, nobody's taking mm-hmm. notes. It's just Wayne Gretzky talking hockey. Wow. And he completely forgot the anxiety and then the, to be nervous about flying. And I always remember that as just a, a moment of just pure Wayne Gretzky. You know, he just was standing there. We're talking hockey and who better to talk hockey with than Wayne Gretzky forgot. Exactly, that. right?
1: I mean, if you're going to chit-chat about hockey, hey, you got the great one right there on the flight with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Gretzky certainly took the NHL to new heights. Um, When I think about it, in the late 60s, 1967, as late as then, Gretzky's just a little kid growing up in Canada, and the NHL only had six teams, the original six. And you think about it now, it has like 32 teams, and it's, it's everywhere, like you said, even in sunny California, you know, the rinks are just full all the time with kids playing hockey. And I think... One of the things that's been interesting about your own career, you know, when you were covering a lot of hockey, starting back in the 80s, even seeing it grow, you have seen the sport mushroom into this. What have you enjoyed about being a hockey writer?
0: Um, I think hockey players have always been the most humble and approachable of all the athletes I've dealt with. And I hate to make blanket statements because within every group of athletes, there's good ones and bad, you know, people who are nice and people who aren't nice. But on the whole, hockey players have always been the most humble, the most down to earth, most approachable, the most open. Why do you think that is? Um, I've always theorized that because so many of them were from Canada and everybody in Canada seems to be so nice. Um, But I think it's the team ethic. Hmm. Um, And, you know, you can say that the team ethic is what makes hockey wonderful, but it's also something that I think has held the sport back, um, held the NHL back, because, you know, you look at the NBA, the NBA is built on personalities, right? and that's great.
1: It's like pro wrestling that way, right? You got good guys, bad guys, marketed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You, you say LeBron, and people know who you're talking about. You say Kyrie, you say, uh, you know, whatever name that you put out there, people know who you mean. Um, because it's built around the personalities. Hockey, the players seem much more comfortable as a unit rather than being singled out. Hmm. And that's wonderful. It's, you know, the the relative lack of egos is just wonderful. It's admirable. But it also, I think, holds the sport back in terms of promotion. And I've always felt that that's one thing that is, among other factors, uh, kept hockey from really exploding in terms of audience. Yeah, I
1: think it's almost related to what you were talking about with how the league tried to dumb down the game and hold a guy like Gretzky in check, right? It's almost it's almost like it's this natural reaction that the sport has to somebody rising up too high as an individual. Yeah. It's all about the room, as the players say, the room.
0: I think there's actually a name for it. I don't know where it comes from. It's called Tall Poppy Syndrome. Like, if you are the tallest, you immediately get cut down. <laughs> You're not supposed to stand out, stand above the rest. And uh, that has been a very, that is something I've seen very frequently in hockey. Um, You know, you, it, it's, the money has changed things, certainly. But I think it's still the best, on the whole, the best group of athletes to cover.
1: Also, I think with hockey is the passion of of the sport itself. It's, it's more of a despite its growth, it's still more of a niche compared to, say, the NFL or the NBA. But within that hockey world, the fans are Mm -hmm. really, really into it. And I'm sure as a reporter or writer, you you know that more than anybody because you hear from them, right? You hear from them.
0: Oh, absolutely, because there's this sense of, you know, well, the Lakers got a story on the front page of the LA Times. How come the LA Kings didn't? And, you know, it, fans are passionate because they know there's so many factors working against their team being covered or being featured on TV or, you know, how many times when they're featured on TV, uh, the names are spelled wrong <laughs> yeah. or, you know, local TV, certainly. Yeah. I, I've seen Wayne Gretzky's name spelled wrong so many times. It's just crazy. Um, but yeah, there's this sense of, You're not just a fan, you're an advocate um, of the game. And uh, the the passion is there. The passion is wonderful.
1: Well, it's certainly there in the spring during the playoffs, which to me, NHL playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs are unlike just about anything that I had the fortune to be around as a writer. You've pretty much covered every Stanley Cup finals just about since, what, 1980? I think you you haven't missed any, have you?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the Stanley Cup playoffs are just this the intensity of it and the whole you know in hockey the, the whole thing where they're growing the beards where teams uh, promote unity by all, having all players grow beards right. um Love that. you know they they, <laughs> they turn they turn into lumberjacks you know they just um uh, it, it's great um but it, there's a sense in the Stanley Cup playoffs of that's harder the Stanley Cup I believe is the hardest trophy to win I really do what do you believe um, that? I've written that and had people say, oh, why, why do you say that? Because of the physicality of hockey, because of the, um, the condensed nature of a playoff series. Uh, you're playing one team, you know, best of seven. There's a lot of opportunity for uh, personal rivalries, for fans to hate each other, for um, just the physicality to ramp up. The, uh, the trail of the Stanley Cup, I think, is tougher. Uh, you know, I've covered NBA playoffs, and yeah, that's pretty grueling too. But when you add the physicality of hockey, that I think makes it just physically more demanding.
1: Do you have a favorite anecdote that sheds light on just how tough it is for the players? Do you a memory of covering all the different playoffs?
0: Not really. I mean, it's just um, the sense of of just every year the the unwavering commitment it takes. You know, it's just been so different these last couple of years because of COVID and bubbles and lack of travel that it's, uh, I haven't covered the last two Stanley Cups for Stanley Cup finals, for example, but it's just the sense of you're all in for two months. It's it's just two months of exhilaration and exhaustion. What's it like for a writer? Two months of exhilaration and exhaustion (laughs) and deadlines (laughs) and terrible deadlines, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very long days. I mean, um, you know, you go to the morning skate, you check the lineup, you check to see who's doing what to who and uh, who's on which line and you talk to the coach and, you know, you ask what who's the starting goalie is and you're told, no, we're not telling you. Uh, you know, but it, it is a very long day. You go to the morning skate, you write something, you know, go to the game later, have to write something. If your deadlines are early, you may have to write two or three different versions of, of your story or column. Um, so it does become a, plus, you know, overtime, unlimited overtime in the playoffs uh, has a way of uh, wreaking havoc with uh, deadlines. Now, now and, that's uh, one thing
1: I wanted to ask you about, covering overtime oh hockey. What is What was the worst night for you covering Stanley Cup playoff hockey that went into overtime? Gosh,
0: well, the Islanders Capitals was 1987, I believe. Quadruple overtime, Please correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> they but, might still be playing. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was it ended at 157 in the morning, and the shots on goal were 75 to 57. I'll always remember that. Jeez. Uh but yeah, I mean 75, that point, minutes, 75 um,
1: shots. The goalie 75
0: to 57. The goaltender yeah. had to
1: look like uh, Bonnie Kelly, and Clyde's car. I mean, come on.
0: Kelly Rudy was one, and I want to say Bob Mason was the other. Uh, But again, my memory is somewhere. I lost my memory changing planes in Chicago at some point. Um, But I mean, just 1.57 in the morning. And I remember, you know, afterwards going down to the locker room to talk to players and the Capitals PR guy walking through the locker room and saying, room is closed at 2.30 in the morning. And it's like, oh my God, the absurdity of it was just uh, ridiculous. I mean, I've covered quadruple over time. I've covered quintuple over time. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, you, as a writer, you're not rooting, but you're on edge because as soon as something happens, you have to send a story, Right. you have to make sure you're getting it all right, update the statistics, you know, provide context and then go downstairs to do interviews. So it's, it, it's just a jumble and it's a lot of, uh, you know, fast thinking and fast typing and it's just very
1: chaotic sometimes. Quite an adrenaline rush.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I guess that's why those of us who are still doing this still do it. It's the uh, adrenaline rush.
1: Well, you covered so many great hockey moments. We talked about the miracle on ice, and we talked a lot about the the Stanley Cup playoffs. I did want to ask you about one particular uh, moment in um, the Stanley Cup finals. And that's in 1994, when the New York Rangers ended their 54-year drought. And you were in the garden, Madison Square Garden, that night. Uh, when they beat the Vancouver Canucks 3-2 to in Game 7. What do you recall about that night, especially since, you know, you grew up in New York. You grew up in Brooklyn. You know what that meant. What was that night like covering that game? Oh,
0: gosh. Um, Just the whole sense of euphoria of how long it had been, you know, all those years Islander fans would chant at the Rangers, you know, 1940. (laughs) And, you know, they didn't have to hear that anymore. Um, I remember somebody in the crowd holding up a sign now I can die happy. <laughs> yeah. right. And um, you know I wish people would point out a bit more often that the Rangers haven't won the cup again since that day. Uh, so that's one cup in uh, 81 years. <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: but just one, hey, just one. It was a good one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was a good one, but yeah, one. Um, you know, just that sense of um, so many years of waiting and just to see it actually happen, to see Marc Messier will that team to a championship was just really astonishing. It was it was a special moment.
1: You mentioned earlier about athletes who are able to do it when the stakes are the highest, and that's when I think about that game and Messier, like you say, willing his team to victory. What have you learned about athletes in those moments when a you know man or a woman performs at their best when the stakes are highest?
0: It's and I think I've heard athletes say that things slowed down for them. Like a batter who uh, hits a game-winning home run might say that a 94-mile-an-hour fastball, whatever, looked like a grapefruit to him. Hmm. Or, you know, just some sense of, the, in different contexts, different sports, that time slowed down for them, that they were able to focus and react in a way that they haven't, hadn't been before. Um, I think it takes, you know, a certain amount of calmness, of confidence. There's really no one answer to say, you know, what makes one athlete great? It, it varies from player to player, varies from team to team. But that's part of the fascination of why were you able to do it today? You know, there are athletes who have had great shining moments and never came close to that again. Mm-hmm. And then there are people like, you know, Tom Brady. Uh, who does it again and 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 again. You know, it, it, it's just so that I think is what makes sports so interesting is the thought, the preparation that goes into it and just that magical ability to see things unfold before they actually happen and to anticipate. I mean, Wayne Gretzky's anticipation of what should happen next and what would happen next is unlike any other players.
1: It's like they can see the chessboard and everybody else is playing checkers.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, Messier certainly did that in 1994, that night in the garden for the Rangers. I wanted to ask you about something about seven years prior to that. Now, I don't think you were there, but on February 4th, 1987, the Maple Leafs owner, Harold Ballard, he wouldn't allow the media into the locker room. And the reason he did that is because the NHL decreed that he must give equal access to females. And... I wanted to ask you about this topic because, again, you started in the late 70s and there were just not many women in sports media at the time. And I was curious about your approach when you first started and the determination that you had to prove yourself. How did you handle that? And what was it like for you at the start of your career? Well,
0: um, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, there were so few female sports writers that we all used to trade information um, as to which locker room was uh, a good place, uh, you know, where players would be, would be nice to us and which ones weren't. I think the thing that was maddening was that it was kind of a patchwork of rules. There was no one set rule from the major sports leagues. So, you know, within the NHL, you'd get teams that would allow you in and teams that wouldn't. I remember being at the Sun-Times and covering, a college football game at Notre Dame. And obviously I wasn't allowed in. I was supposed to wait for the sports information director to bring players out. And quite often that didn't happen. And I remember the security guard kept pushing me further and further away from the door Hmm. to the point where I was outside the gate. I was locked out.
1: What? You were outside the stadium? Yeah.
0: I mean, just pushed outside the gate. Oh,
1: my. Um, What did you do? What
0: did did you do? Well, I, I got back in. But I mean, it was, I think that, you know, there among our colleagues, there were some men who were very helpful and either would, you know, help us advocate for equal access or would help by bringing out players or quotes or, you know, bring out quotes for us when we couldn't go in. And there were some who didn't care. There were some who said, you know, hey, tough, this is uh, the way it is. And who I think could have and should have been more helpful, uh, but it just took it as a, as an opportunity to beat us on things, uh,
1: you know. Yeah, to me, Helene, I think when I think about that issue, it's about fairness, I mean when you're closing the locker room to women only but allowing men in that's that's absurd. I mean you're you're allowing the male reporters to have an advantage, right?
0: That was the case, absolutely it was and you know people seem I, I don't know it gets very contentious and I've gotten emails over the years and now with social media you get social media comments and all these things, you know, just some horrible, horrible things. And, you know, are you going in there looking for a husband? Uh, you know, do you have a notebook on 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 the naked men that you see? You know, th- that kind of thing. No. And that's not the issue. The issue is equal access. If it's equal access in a press conference or equal access in a, where, wherever it is, that's the point is the equal access. Right,
1: right. How do you handle all that negativity coming at you like that? Just just the absurdity of it and the meanness. And how do you handle that as a person?
0: I mean, there are times it, it bothers me. And I think you ask any female sports writer or sports broadcaster um, and they'll tell you they've gotten some pretty horrible comments that have made them feel bad. But, you know, if you let other people, comments from other people on their attitudes run your life, then you're living their life, not yours.
1: Hmm. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah,
0: you know, I'm I'm gonna do my job. You don't like it, sorry. That's your choice to not like it. Mm-hmm. You don't get to tell me what to do.
1: And you mentioned along the way that there were there were many people who were helpful, helping solve you know how wrong it was to have you know women treated differently in terms of getting access to do their jobs. I think there was a time, with even like Daryl Strawberry helped you once, right?
0: Yeah. Um, uh, Ken Griffey was another uh, wonderful guy and Ken Griffey Jr. as well, because um, when I worked at Newsday, I used to do a lot of backup baseball. So I do uh, a lot of Yankees, um, Yankee stuff. And at that point, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. was one of the little kids who used to hang out in the hallway with all the other players, kids and uh, Billy Martin um, on days when his hangovers were particularly bad. would yell at those little kids. And that's one of the reasons Griffey wanted out of New York. But um, Ken Griffey Jr. was always nice to me on the occasions when I would uh, see him because um, I was actually hired at the LA Times as a baseball writer. I covered the Angels for three seasons, my first three years at the LA Times. And then I covered the Lakers before I um, did any real hockey writing at the LA Times. But, um, you know, there are athletes over the years who were classy who were helpful um there was a time um i was in the mets clubhouse with um another sports writer named marty noble Mm -hmm. and uh, marty was kind of introducing me around to people and um dave kingman started following us around and kind of like mimicking like taking notes you know writing in a notebook and and all and it was just very creepy it was Mm -hmm. just very uh uncomfortable and at one you know marty went off to do his own thing so i was talking to reporters and Kingman would just be lurking over my shoulder. Mm. And this happened more than one game. And finally, I just, I talked to the, uh, to somebody at the Mets and I said, this is just really not necessary. This is really creepy and uncomfortable. And uh, the manager was Frank Howard. And he apologized to me and it became a story. AP wrote a story and it just became a story and I wish it hadn't. But um, after it became public, Daryl Strawberry came up to me and said, Next time something like that happens, you come to me. I'll take care of it. Oh, wow. Which I thought
1: was really incredible. Yeah. it's great. Yeah. That's really, that's really, yeah. really great. You know, I, I think, you know, I've read where you have said before that, you know, the journalist in you is always, I don't want to be part of the story. I don't want to be the story. Right. But, but I do think it's important to document what this was like, because I feel like, you know, the people who had doors opened up to them and rightfully so should know what it was like, should know what you had to deal with, and you and other women, you know, the women of the, especially the late 70s, early 80s. And really the unfortunate thing is it's still, it's still a problem. You know, it's still a societal problem. Hell, it happened with Jared Porter, right? Yeah. Earlier this year, you know, got fired by the, uh, as general manager to Mets. And, you know, you wrote a really moving column about that, you know, and I encourage people to read that particular column because, I think it humanizes the reporter and what they're dealing with. Um, why did you feel it wasn't important in that column to to really specify some of the things that you had to deal with?
0: You know, as on the whole, you know, sports writers have what other people perceive to be a dream job. Mm-hmm. And in many ways it is. Absolutely it is. I've seen uh, sports events I never dreamt I'd see. I've been to places around the world I never imagined I'd, I'd get to visit. And I think on the whole, people don't want to know about the problems we have. Um, I know on planes, uh, you know, you talk to the person next to you or used to in pre-COVID days and they said, what do you do? I do this. Oh, what do you do? I'm I'm a sports fan. Oh, wow, you are so lucky. And, you know, you get to see the Lakers play. Yeah, but there is some work involved. They don't want to hear that part of it. And I've always just kind of, you know, taken the position of I don't want to spoil somebody else's dream. I don't they don't need to know what goes into the sausage. Mm. Um, You know, it's and I'll just say, yeah, it's a wonderful it's been a wonderful uh, experience. But I think it's also important for people to know that there are still difficulties in the workplace. There are still people like Jared Porter. There are still situations where women are afraid to report misbehavior because they're told or they have reason to believe that reporting it would be would mean they're labeled a troublemaker. Mm. They're labeled a problem, not a team player, because a person in power has control over their job or or their future. You know, power corrupts in many cases, um, and it's about power. Mm. It's about Jared Porter exercising his power over people or other. Executives exercising their power over people to frighten them in or coerce them into doing things that they don't want to do. It's still out there. And it's, I think, sadly, it's part of human nature. It'll never disappear, that idea that you can use power to hold, have a hold on other people. But I think it's worth talking about in the sense of, you don't have to put up with that anymore. You should not have to put up with that. And the, the important thing is to change the attitude of somebody who reports it is not a troublemaker. Exactly. Somebody who reports it, who has been victimized is not a troublemaker. They're not somebody who should be labeled as, Oh, she's not a team player. This is a human being whose rights to a calm, respectful workplace are being violated.
1: Do you take a lot of pride in knowing that you were part of a wave of female reporters in sports media that did make a difference in regards to this?
0: I mean, I, I think that the attitudes in society were changing at the time as well. If I played a small part, and I want to mention also that there were some women before me, Laurie Mifflin at the New York Daily News, Mary Flannery in Philadelphia, uh, Joan Ryan, uh, there were uh, Robin Herman. Uh, Jane Gross, uh, we're all writing a little bit ahead of when I was there. But, you know, if I played any small part in it, I'm, I'm happy that people might think that. But I don't know how many people, women out there today know what it used to be like or care what it used to be like. You know, sometimes I wonder if I've had any impact at all. And other times I'll hear from readers who say, you know, such and such a column really meant something to me. I mean, like the column you mentioned a few moments ago about harassment. I wrote about harassment I had experienced as a young reporter and the fact that I did not really know how to handle it. And I mean, I heard from other women saying, yes, I know exactly what you mean. And they, a number of them shared their stories of what had happened to them. And some of it was absolutely horrific absolutely horrible horrible stuff uh about how people in power took advantage of them treated them terribly coerced them terrorized them at work you know it's just awful awful stuff so when you hear from people who say you know that story i identified with that or people who say you know i've been reading you i I felt like i was there when i read your column i felt like i was there Mm. that to me is the ultimate compliment and uh That's why I keep doing this for to hear (laughs) things like that.
1: Well, it's amazing that you're still just doing it at such a high level with such great passion for it. Uh, The energy, like you said, keeping it fresh, you know, the unknown of the daily sports world. What's going to happen? Who's going to win this game? What's going to make that trade? Has it really been a dream job when you think about it?
0: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, again, here I am, this kid from the such a far corner of Brooklyn that it hasn't been gentrified, Um that, you know, and here I am all over the world, 17 Olympics, World Cup soccer, uh Stanley Cup finals, NBA finals, World Series. I mean, it's just stuff I could never have dared to dream of. Uh, and absolutely, it's, it's, Uh, been, uh, just been an amazing, amazing experience.
1: Well, Helene, I really do appreciate you joining us. Uh, You've made a real difference in uh, sports media. I know your peers all uh, agree with me on that. And I just want to say thank you again for for joining us.
0: Well, thank you. You read it just like I wrote it.
1: (laughs) Checks in the mail, Helene. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Huffman, and our audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on!